The Catholic Channel Sirius XM 129 presents Just Love with your host, Monsignor Kevin Sullivan, Executive Director of Catholic Charities of the Archdiocese of New York. Welcome back to Just Love. This is our weekly conversation about what's going on in the world from the perspective of our Catholic social teaching. Our Catholic social teaching focuses on the dignity of the human person. It focuses on worldwide solidarity. It focuses on the rights of workers and decent work. Focuses on the family, participation in society. And in a particular way, a particular preference for those who are poor. Not to the exclusion of people who are not, but when we look at the world around us, we see how many times those who have poor, those who have fewer economic resources have an uphill battle in a lot of different ways. And, you know, a couple of weeks ago, we were speaking with somebody who spoke about the fact that, you know, people who have some addictions, people who have mental illnesses, that the people who have some resources, they kind of can deal with them in a way that, you know, they maybe cope, they get by, they get treatment. But if you don't, and if you don't have many resources, you that's why we have, unfortunately, a lot of our sisters and brothers who are homeless. And there's a correlation between the, the mental illness, addiction, homelessness. But there's also a correlation with poverty that there's not the resources to prevent that type of result of not having a home. And so those are the issues that we bring to bear or the values that we bring to bear when we look at what's going on in the world. And so, um, Tom, we continue to do our Lenten Lenten season. We continue to do that. Um, So are you going to do what you do again for Holy Week, which is only in a few weeks, even though we've not fully into Lent, are you going to do the Pax Christi Holy uh, Good Friday? I am with you, yeah. In fact, uh, this year um, we have the sixth station, uh, Veronica Wipes the Face of Jesus, and you had mentioned, Monsignor, a little bit about some guests we had on about homelessness. The, the, the station this year is actually about those without homes. So, uh, so we're doing the station, Veronica Wipes the Face of Jesus, about those uh, who we meet on the street and, uh, and how we're called to care for them uh, and, and, and help them with dignity the way Veronica helped Jesus while he was struggling along the street on, uh, on, on that first good Friday. That's interesting. That is, that is, uh, good. And you know where that one's going to be? That's going to be outside of grand central station. So it's going to be one of the more central ones, which is, which is good. So, I mean, you know, generally we get more exposure as we, we, we start out very early by the United Nations. And that's, you know, not as, you know, it's not as well attended, but as, as time goes on, we get more folks joining. And then when we're by Grand Central, it gets very busy. So I'm kind of, I'm kind of glad we get that station. <laughs> so t- Tom, do you, have you ever, you've been to Israel or not? I've never been to Israel. No, that's okay, on the bucket so, list. So let me share with our listeners a little bit about um, where Jesus died and, and the stations of the cross, because I have been to, been to Israel. And it really, and one if you have a good tour guide who knows what she or he is doing, they make you go there very, very early in the morning. Mm-hmm. And the reason they do that is because 
the stations or the way of the cross that Jesus was thought to have walked. And why do I say that? Because when you're going back 2,000 years, you know, the archaeological stuff gives you, you know, good probability as to what happened. But some of the things you're not 100% certain that it happened in this particular footstep, et cetera. But anyway, so they take you through this uh, path, but the path now goes right through the middle of, of Jerusalem. And so the reason they want you to go early in the morning is before all the stores open, the shops open, so you can do it in a way which is somewhat prayerful and somewhat um, very, uh, you know, very solemn, because otherwise you'd be walking through a marketplace. Mm. And so I think, you know, when we think about Lent and the crucifixion of Jesus, we sometimes think that it was a real kind of completely staged uh, event which didn't have anything to do with what was going on in the world, but it was in the middle of, you know, of Jerusalem. Now, I don't know what was going on in Jerusalem at that time. I can't say it was a marketplace, but it does seem that, you know, it wasn't just an isolated place. And Tom, as you pointed out, the sixth station, there certainly were people who were alongside Jesus. Mm -hmm. There were people who were, you know, were there as the crucifixion was, was taking place. Um, so, um, anyway, so, uh, so that's what you're going to do this good Friday. That's my, yep. That's my, you know, I, it's kind of like my tradition. And so, uh, and I, and I stick through it and it's really great. We go through, and actually they do, they do 15 stations. I know it's technically good Friday and they probably should wait, but they do the, they do the resurrection station over in front of Holy Cross church over on the West side. So, okay. <laughs> All right. Well, that's, listen, you know, it's, it's, um, you know, wherever you go into the mystery, you got to wind up with all of them. I mean, if you begin at the incarnation, <laughs> at the birth, you get to the crucifixion. Mm-hmm. If you go with the resurrection, you got to get to the cross. It's That's just right. kind of where they all kind of are part of the, the mystery of our salvation. And it just depends where you where you begin. So anyway, Tom, why don't we go to our first guest? Okay. Our first guest is... Jessica Sarowitz, and I'm glad she's going to be back with us again. She was with us a, a while ago, and I'm delighted that she is joining us again on Just Love. Jessica, thank you for being with us on Just Love. Good morning, Monsignor Sullivan. How are you? We are fine. Thank you for being with us. So tell our listeners a little bit. Again, refresh them. I know you were out with us a while ago. Tell us a little bit about your history and a little bit, let them know you a little bit before we talk about the uh, documentary film that's coming up. Wonderful. So my name is Jessica Sarowitz, and I am um, a social impact investor and also the president of Miraflores Films and the executive producer of the documentary film With This Light. Um, I am a practicing Catholic, um, and went to Catholic Jessica, school. you know what I gotta ask you? I gotta ask this question all the time, and I, permit me, are you ever going to get it right? I mean, they always say we're practicing Catholics. Do we have to, do we ever get it right, or are we always practicing? We never get it right. Okay. It's our, always be of service <laughs> and learn from others. And uh, practice, we have to always practice. We also okay. always, that's the way I say it. 
Okay. I'm sorry I interrupted you. Please keep going. Um, I am an immigrant to the U.S. Uh, from Honduras, Central America. Came to this country two years old with my parents and uh, been living in mostly the Chicagoland ever, area ever since. Um, and I love to tell to support people in the telling of their stories, their powerful stories, especially stories of faith and stories of mission and service. So, all right. So Jessica, now you have, there is a upcoming documentary film, which does precisely that, which is called with this light. You want to share with our listeners a little bit about that film and the story that it tells. Yes, so the documentary film, With This Light, or in Spanish, Con Esta Luz, it is a bilingual film, meaning that um, the story is told in Spanish, the people um, talk in Spanish, but there are English subtitles, and there's a powerful reason for that, and it is because it uh, the story is about the mission and life works of Sister Maria Rosa Legol, a Franciscan nun that is from Honduras, but had um, done her novitiate in Milwaukee, USA, and with the school sisters of St. Francis, and uh, went back to Honduras after doing her novitiate, and started working in the public health clinic. And uh, this was in the 1960s the late 1970s, early 80s, 1970s, and um, worked in the public health clinic for several years. And when um, she was ready, she saw the great need in the community, especially around the issues of orphaned, abandoned, and abused children. There was a lot of poverty in Honduras. And what she did was really gather um, like-minded people from the community to address the issues that were present in, in the community and formed, started out with creating homes for um, these orphan, abandoned, and abused children. So um, 50, 50, 60 years later, what she, uh, her outcomes have been tremendous. Over 87,000 kids that were raised through her homes and her social programs. She created over 120 rapid clinics, which deliver public health, um, like vaccines and other sort of, of public health, um, you know, initiatives. There have been uh, global brigades uh, that have come as a result of her work, um, uh, most there is one institution, um, Global Brigades, that is a university club system. So it, the reach is, is actually beyond Honduras into the U.S. and actually Europe and other places of Latin America. But uh, Global Brigades, that was the first site, um, started out in Sisters' um, really property and under her given her support. And they are a university club system that uh, gathers uh, medical faculty and students, uh, medical students, to administer public health programs. And it goes on today. There are volunteers that, uh, university volunteers that go to down to Honduras 
and provide these much needed public health uh, brigades. And also she created schools, uh, primary schools, at uh, high schools, and other initiatives uh, having to do with the poor and um, marginalized, uh, home for um, AIDS patients, um, elderly, and even some addictive addiction type issues as well. So uh, how, how'd she do all this? Well, this is what I say. It is a, one of the, first you have to have a, I say you have to have a channel to God. You have to have great faith and you have to be very inclusive and welcoming and gather community that want to be of service, that are looking for purpose and meaning and are moved by their great faith to, um, you know, be witness, to act, to serve communities. And what she did was just gather people. People love to be around these sort of projects and um, they wanted to be of service. So that's how she did it. She just keeps getting more and more and more and more. She just kept getting more and more and more people involved because she was a great, a great communicator. And um, I say that she was just extremely focused and moved by the faith to talk constantly to everyone from all walks of life about the great needs that she saw present and people just responded. So uh, talk to us a little bit about the Milwaukee connection. How did, what's, what's that connection? Well, this has to do with her origin story. Okay. When she was um, right around six years old, she had an encounter with German Catholic nuns that arrived to Honduras and they arrived at a beach and she saw them um, as they were walking past. She describes them as being, they look like angels, but they look like um, little red apples because they were so hot in their habits. And um, when she saw them, you know, she had sort of this, um, vision or transformative sort of um, experience. And she, in that moment, she says she knew that she wanted to be with them. And um, she asks people, well, what are they doing here? What are they doing here? Well, they're here to minister to, uh, you know, orphaned kids. And she says to herself, well, I'm an orphan. So that means she, they're there for me. And I need to follow them. And there's a big story about um, really her personality. She was a bit of a rascal. And um, the she finds out where they're going to be uh, for Sunday service, which is like another town over. And um, she goes off to service. And it's actually a train right away. And this is when she's six years old? Yes. Yes. And, um, you know, she was born in like 19, 1930s. So um, very devout um, um, godparents. And it was just different times in terms of, you know, what kids were allowed to do. Right. She playing I mean, they're thinking she's just going to the local church. Right. She, hops, I mean, she hops on a train and she just goes and tells the sisters, I'm here, sisters, I'm here. Um. And um, they do take her in because they think that she's um, 
you know, abandoned. And um, she stays with them for quite a, quite a bit of time. And that's how really it happens. And uh, then um, what's interesting, too, is that um, we call her sister in the U.S., but the German name for sister is Sor, S-O-R. So sometimes you'll hear people down in Honduras refer to her as Sor Maria Rosa because of the German um, influence. Ah. And so, so she ultimately joins that community? So she does join the community because this is her calling. She knows from a very young age that she wants to um, be of service and minister, especially to youth. So she joins, like I said, she goes to Milwaukee, does her novitiate training over there, comes back, goes and um, uh, serves at the public health clinic. Now, what's interesting about that is she gets to meet a whole parcel of people at the public health clinic, right? You can imagine babies are born, um, you know, mothers and fathers of, of people that are in there to be ministered to, there's accents, whatever. But What's interesting is she starts to talk about, well, we need to do something about all of these orphan, abandoned, abused kids. And she makes connections. And um, she forms a board. Um, little, really, she doesn't really talk about it to her mother's superior. So like I said, she's a bit of a rascal. Mm-hmm. And um, she forms a board with um, some of her um, patients or family members of patients. And she asks an engineer friend that she knows from probably one of her patients. Uh, she hears about uh, the engineer uh, creating, building some new homes in a new colonia, a new community. And she commissions 10 houses. Now, it doesn't mind you, doesn't really talk to, to her mother superior about this. Um, and it's in the film, um, and she tells it in her own words, sister tells it in her own words. And one day, um, the engineer sends the invoice for payment to the mother superior and the mother superior is like, what? Um, you know, we don't have the funds for this. And, um, sister says to the mother superior, it's okay. I have a board and they've all committed to helping, um, you know, they have the funds, we have the funds, we can pay it. And that's how she gets started. Wow. It's uh that's a great, great story. Jessica Sourwitz, who is the founder and the executive producer at Miraflores Films. He's also the managing partner at 45 Bay Partners. Hey Jessica, just to give our listeners a little bit, what's 45 Bay Partners? Okay, well, it's really four S. Oh, four S. I'm sorry, I apologize. <laughs> Uh, Forest Bay Purpers is a family office, and it is the family office for the Sarawitz family. I am the managing partner of the family office, so that means that um, we have everything from um, several, several lines of direct businesses under the family office. We have two philanthropic foundations. We are uh, impact uh, investors, angel investors. Um, we are builders of property. We also have two filmmaking companies and mine is called Miraflores Films that focuses on documentary filmmaking. And I have a particular lens in that I try to support projects that are, um, led by or created by, uh, BIPOC people or woman led 
So in this case, for this film, it was very important that we had a female perspective because we had a female spiritual leader. And so I'm thinking, um, you know, if we had um, the producer, the director, the cinematographer, the executive, um, you know, music um, director, all in key roles, roles, they could give more of that feminine eye or feminine perspective to this great story. And um, I know that Holy Father um, is also uh, trying to lift up more of, uh, you know, Catholic women in um, having the opportunity to tell about, um, you know, their role in the Catholic faith and also the great contributions that um, they make to the Catholic faith. Because, you know, in just my personal opinion, I think that women bind community. You know, they're the heart source a lot of times for um, keeping the family together, keeping, um, you know, just uh, making sure that everyone's doing well. And uh, also um, making sure that they understand, you know, their faith and uh, educating and so on and so forth. That, <clears throat> that sounds wonderful. Um, so tell, tell our, listen, our listeners a little bit, if they want to see the film, how do they get to see it? Well, they can go to our film website, www.withthislight.com. And we have a page with our upcoming events. Uh, Our next event is the Houston Latino Film Festival. Our film has won uh, several awards. Um, We won the Austin Film Festival uh, Jury Award for Best Feature Documentary. We have won the Catholics and Media Award for uh, Social Justice uh, for the film. The film has had great impact already with audiences. They love the film. They love the two youthful storylines. They love the origin story of Sister. Um, there's a great plane story, how she stops the plane. And um, there's also, you know, the mystery. I call it a mystery because I don't even know how this happened. But Holy Father was able to see the trailer very early on in, in the process of uh, completing the film. He loved the story and uh, wasn't really aware of her story. Um, sister did meet Holy Father um, Pope John, and um, but hadn't met Pope Francis. So um, he was just amazed by all of her good works, her humble uh, nature, the way in which she served community and the great impact that, that uh, and great love that the community had for sisters. Is she still alive? Um, unfortunately, sister's not alive. Uh, as, um, she was a victim to COVID. Uh, uh, she did COVID and went in uh, to the hospital. Didn't want to stay there because she knew that uh, she was needed in her ministry. So came out. Um, she died just shy of 94 years old. Wow. Um, and so, yeah. you know, we'll also be presented in the film, but I want everyone to know that um, what's most important is that the film is used in a way to hopefully, I, I hope people first love the film, love love the experience of seeing the film, and um, also find hope 
from the film. They get hope from the film. Um, and also support them maybe in their efforts of, of thinking around how they serve their community, how they can connect and uh, globalize this call to mission service that, you know, us as uh, Catholics, as faithful people, we're, we're asked to do in, in hopefully our daily lives in some, in some way, smaller or big. Well, that, that was fascinating. That sounds like a fascinating story. I can't wait to watch the film. You got any other projects that you're working on that you want to share? Wow. Um, I have a lot of projects. One other film is called Imagining the Indian, the fight against mascotting. And I'm executive producer of that film. It is also currently uh, undergoing distribution right now and will be in cinemas um, in various cities. Um, You can go to that film website, www.imaginingtheindians.com and see that. That's one other powerful story about um, Native peoples and their struggle to uh, remove uh, hurtful and harmful images of uh, Native really stereotyping in the sports industry and also the educational industry. So we're talking mascots. We're talking, uh, for example, Washington Redskins. That name was just a very egregious name. It has been removed. But um, there's still other uh, instances where it's still present in our society and just looking up, you know, raising awareness for that cause. That's another thing. Okay. Well, thank you, Jessica. Thank you so much for for sharing that. I think it's a great documentary. I'm looking forward to seeing it. And thanks for taking the time to be with us on Just Love. Thank you so much, Monsignor. It's been a true honor and pleasure to be here. Jessica Sarowitz, the founder, executive director at Miraflores Films and the managing partner at 4SBA Partners. Um, Tom, I think we'll take a break. Just love. Just love God. Just love your neighbor. Just love yourself. And our world will be more just and it will be more compassionate. We'll be back in a moment on the Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129.
Just do it. Just love. Just check out Monsignor Kevin Sullivan, who's here right now. Take it away, Monsignor. Welcome back to Just Love. Just do it. Just love God. Just love your neighbor. Just love yourself. And our world will be more just than it will be more compassionate. I hope that you are doing well during this Lenten season. And a reminder that if we haven't been as faithful to some of the Lenten practices, there's always a time to start. There's always a time to begin. Now, I know a couple of things I've been doing okay on, a couple of things I haven't been doing that okay on, but there's still the opportunity to kind of restart. And I think, you know, it was interesting. I, a couple of weeks ago, on Sunday readings, there was Paul that was part of it. The disciples were, went up on the mountain, the transfiguration, and then there's Abraham. And what I found a little bit interesting about that is that, you know, Abraham is considered very old, over maybe 90 at one point, uh, 75 another, when he kind of begins his journey, when he re- responds to God's call. Paul, a little bit hard to know what age he was, but he clearly was not a youth and clearly not in a senior when he engages in his mystery, his conversion, or his ministry and his conversion. And then you have the disciples who probably were younger, maybe in their early 20s or something. They were beginning their careers probably in their, couple of them in their parents, kind of their father's fishing business. So you had a variety of different people at different stages of their lives. And yet God calls and they respond. So I think during the Lenten season, none of us should feel exempt from the call of God to grow deeper in our faith, in our relationship with God. And by extension, uh, if maybe the first few weeks of Lent haven't been as powerful as they should be, well, we still have time. And we still can move forward to trying to enter more deeply into the Lenten season. So anyway, so I let's go to our next guest. And the next guest is a friend of, of Tom Dobbins and uh, Ashok Rajamani. He is a writer, an educator, a speaker. He has a memoir with a very, very kind of, um, you know, provocative title, The Day My Brain Exploded, a true story published by Algonquin Book just about a decade ago. And it's about his recovery from a uh, catastrophic brain hemorrhage. I am very, very delighted that uh, Ashok Rajamani has agreed to kind of share with us a little bit of his story to be part of part of us. And um, so, Tom, why don't you do a little bit of the introduction of your friend? And um, why don't you? I'm just going to sit back and listen <laughs> to the conversation that you and he are going to have. Okay, terrific, Monsieur. Well, first of all, I want to welcome, as you had mentioned. Uh, Ashok, uh, Ashok Rajamani is a, is a good friend of mine, and we're just delighted that he'll be joining us today. He's going to talk a little bit 
uh, about his memoir, uh, The Day My Brain Exploded, a true story. And uh, he, he's also, uh, Ashok is joining us because it's Brain Injury Awareness Month. So he's going to share a little bit about his experience uh, and tell us a little bit uh, about what his experience was like and, and, and mention uh, how his belief in God helped him a little bit through this experience. So Ashok, welcome to Just Love. Thank you so much for being on the, on, I would say, on, on the show. Um, Ashok, just to wind up starting out, um, why don't you share with the listeners a little bit about yourself? Tell them a little bit ab about uh, your experiences, and then maybe we can get a little bit about uh, Brain Injury Awareness Month and talk a little bit about brain injury. Thank you. Well, first, I wanted to say thank you for having me. It's an honor to be on your show. Um, the book, The Day My Brain Exploded, is about my own brain hemorrhage that happened when I was 25, which oddly enough happened at my brother's wedding. Um, and basically, it was it's all about my survival and how I've made it through. The hospitalization was three months long, after which they drilled open my skull and scooped out half my brain. And then it took a good uh, 20 years to regain <laughs> my life again, to get from the land of the dead to the land of the living, as I say. Yes. And then I decided I was going to write a memoir on it. And I have. And I'm really excited to be discussing this with you on Brain Injury Awareness Month. It means a lot to me because I think the brain injury community really needs to be uh, spoken about and to be dealt with in, in such a beautiful manner. And I think, Ashok, actually, you know, maybe you can mention a little bit of, to that about you know, to, to our listeners. And, and I do have a couple of, of statistics here about brain injury that I would like to share. And I, and I, I want to get your uh, uh, opinion of this, because I know so often brain injury is sort of like a disability that affects so many. Uh, and, and yet, you know, sometimes because it's not visible, you know, it, it, it isn't, I guess, as, as understood as some other, as some other injuries are. So I'm just going to share some statistics with you. Here in the United States, about a million Americans are treated and released from hospital emergency rooms because of traumatic brain injury every year. Uh, it's estimated in the United States, 230,000 people are hospitalized and survive. About 80,000 people are estimated to be discharged from the hospital with a TBI-related disability. And, and sadly, about 50,000 people die. Um, and then it says about 5.3 million Americans today are living with a disability related to brain injury. Um, can you share with us a little bit, Ashok? I know because you've talked to me about this, how brain injury is sort of like, because it's not necessarily noticeable, um, it, it, it sometimes is is, over, is overlooked. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about what the experience of brain injury is like for that? Yes, it's called invisible conditions or invisible ailments. And a lot of people have that experience and they go through uh, difficult issues because the world society is a very visual, visual world. So unless we see someone, say an amputee with one limb, we won't really understand the depth of uh, their damage and what they, their compromising positions. And so, um, yeah, it's it's very difficult. I think I wanted to mention that I'm, why I'm so happy to be on your program is I have done countless interviews, but I've never, ever really got to deal with um, discussing how spirituality aided and affected and uh, made my survival possible. And I'm glad to be on uh, your show where I can just <laughs> about how I'm blessed and because I am blessed because of divinity. Well, why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Because, you know, I mean, I know, you know, you, you and I, we, we met because of, I guess, our, our, our religious beliefs and background, myself being a Catholic and you obviously being Hindu. 
Um, and 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 I think that you know one of the things that always you know really um, totally um, uh, you know really always impressed me was how deep your faith is, and 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 you always shared how your faith really helped you through your recovery. So why don't you share with our listeners a little bit about that journey, what that was like, and 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 kind of what your experiences were. Great. Well, first I wanted to say that in my assessment, everyone kept saying, "Oh, the surgeons." saved your life, the surgeons helped you, and or they, they made it possible. In my opinion, for me, the surgeons were gas station attendants, mm. for us. but the oil was God. That mm. was what was most important to me. The, the thing that made my life and my body drive again was the oil, which was God. And I think I learned so much in this experience. One thing is in Hindu iconography, the sacred feminine is a force that is very powerful and uh, all about resistance and physical um, power. That's called the sword. Okay. Mm-hmm. And also then on the other end, you and that's um, represented by a force called Kali. Okay. Then on the other end, you have um, God is love. God mm-hmm. is beauty. And that's represented by Krishna, which is another mm-hmm. of the God. And that is represent that is the flute. So in my recovery, in my experience, I needed to wield both the sword and the flute. Hmm. That meant I had to call upon powers of resistance. I had to resistance and I had to surrender. And to those two elements, which I realized are part of divinity, resistance and surrender, is what got me through this predominantly. Yeah. Yeah, and it is interesting because you do you mention a little bit about that resistance piece. And I know one of the things, you know, obviously, you know, you are a brain injury survivor, but I know so often you and 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 some other folks, you know, who kind of you're with when you go to some brain injury events, you know, you're also brain injury warriors. So I do think that there is that resistance element that, you know, has to be you know, kind of when you go out and you try to sort of like, you know, live your life every day, you know, sure, and as sure. I said, sometimes, you know, go about and just sort of have a, have a, uh, a, uh, you know, have, you have resistance to yourself and, 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 and let's say people may not understand some of the challenges that the brain injured encounter, you know, so I know sometimes, you know, I know I've shared with you uh, a little bit about my own family background and history. My grandfather actually many years ago also had uh, a brain injury. He, uh, he was a truck driver for UPS and, uh, and he had a terrible accident and he had a brain injury afterward. And, um, and, and he, he was not able to recover as well. He, he had some severe intellectual disabilities growing up. So my mom always had that in her house. And I think that's what makes, I think, you know, uh, I mean, made our family, you know, sensitive to those issues. But I think that, you know, it is it is something that we have to take stock of during this brain injury month um, mm-hmm. to wind up looking forward. Correct. So why don't you, why don't you share with our listeners a little bit about what some of the challenges that you've encountered have been? Simply, uh, not it actually isn't simply. But one problem I learned is that I have emotional amnesia. What does that mean? That means that, for instance, I can remember this show, I can remember this interview, but I cannot remember the feelings I had. The nervousness, the tension, whatever you want to call it. <laughs> Speaking to a big man like you, you know, I'm, I'm frightened about it. Um, I won't remember the feelings. I will remember intellectually what happened. And I also wanted to say something that I've not been able to discuss in my other interviews, which is the issue of the soul. 
Mm. And I think with the Catholic radio, this might be something interesting to learn about or to discuss. In Hindu folk iconography, the reason we cremate our bodies is that it's the only way that our skulls can break and mm. our souls escape through our skull. Mm. So my skull, skull was drilled wide open. So there was a part of me that thought, oh, oh my goodness, my soul left. This is it. I, where is Ashok's soul? Mm. Then I realized when I saw the sun, when I saw nature, when I saw beauty and greenery, when I saw love among humans and love towards me, I realized my soul hadn't disappeared. God hadn't disappeared. Mm -hmm. So this was extremely important to me to realize that this happened. So I'm assess I assess that all people who've experienced catastrophic accidents, they need to understand that things are wonderful at the end of it, that there is a, um, lining, a silver lining at the end of it, whether it's divine. Yes, no, I think, and, and I think ultimately, I know, you know, I've had the opportunity to read your memoir, obviously, but for those who haven't, I think that, you know, a, a, a thread line that runs through it is certainly the thread line of hope. So I think that when you wind up looking at that, I think that that is something, you know, that that is something to wind up remembering. And and, and I guess I would ask you, how how was the experience of writing a memoir, you know, <laughs> at, at, at uh, you know, in your, when you're 30 years old, you know, but you had a lot go on in your life. So how was that experience? It was, uh, you know, it was extremely, extremely wild. I had, I was uh, in journalism before my brain hemorrhage. So which is a whole different type of writing. Because of this, because I realized how rare and unique my experience was that I'm still here, I'm alive, I'm cognizant, and I can think, I'm going to make use of it, I'm going to help the world, I'm going to do something. So I decided I'm going to share my life story, share my recovery, and share all about resilience. When I wrote the memoir, I had no idea what the writing world was like, the publishing world. It's very difficult. You need a literary agent to do anything, to sell anything. But you know me that I'm very unconventional. So I, I did not use a literary agent. I just called different editors' names because I like their names on the internet. And okay. that's it. So I called one editor and he goes, this is not the way it should be. You need an agent. <laughs> so I said, well, I don't have an agent. Let me send you my book page by page. And I did. And slowly but surely he read every page and said, I want to make this a book. And mm. that's what happened. And I wrote the book and I, uh, I'm i still amazed by how everything went off and went off so well. I, 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 I think it's amazing. And, and I know if people wanted to read the book, they can go on Amazon and they can get both a copy of the book and they can get their um, and they can also get an audio book that you also did and that you read as well. So I think that that's something, too. And, uh, and Tom, did and, you like did you like the audio book? I did indeed. <laughs> I did. <laughs> I were my I accents like okay? Did I do all your accents are all, all, all of your all your accents are good? <laughs> and I do think that uh, and 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 if people wanted to find out uh, more about you know your book and anything that's going on or brain injury, where mm -hmm. could they go to in order to be able to find out more? Oh, they can go directly onto my site, ashokrajamani.com. That's a s h o k r a j a m a n i dot com which will tell you all about the book and it will tell you all about brain injury and brain injury awareness month and what that entails. One thing I haven't been able to discuss here, which I'll do for two seconds is mm -hmm. uh, in addition to the brain injury, I have lost my vision in half of both my eyes. 
that's an ailment called hemianopsia. Mm -hmm. And that itself is another invisible ailment. Nobody knows about my blindness. So they'll, if I bump something, they'll just say I'm drunk. And I'm, you know, that's not the issue with that. So in my website, you can also read about blindness, about vision disorders, everything you want about brain injury. That's excellent. That's excellent. And other than that, Ashok, is there is there anything coming down the pike? Anything interesting? Anything well, that you'd I, like to share? This might be really, really early to say this, but this is, um, how can I say this? In the steps of going under development to become a motion picture. So I'm very excellent. excited about that. Yeah, I'm excited to see my life as a movie. And uh, my parents aren't excited because they don't want to see themselves. (laughs) They just do not want to see themselves on the big screen. But I'm extremely (laughs) excited. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to that. Well, they always say they say it's both a blessing and a curse to be a friend of a memoirist because, you know, then your life gets recounted. (laughs) (laughs) That is correct, Tom. That is correct. (laughs) Absolutely. so other than that, I want to thank you, Ashok. And, and again, thank you for sharing a little bit about your journey with brain injury during this Brain Injury Awareness Month. And, and I encourage our listeners, if they can, to just go and find out more about brain injury and 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 to uh and 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 to uh, to understand some of the struggles that some of our brain injury brothers and sisters struggle with. Thank you very much, Tom. And it was an honor to be in this in the show. Thank let you. Me, thank uh, you. Let me just take a moment, uh, Ashok, to say. Thank you for uh, for being here. Well, let me let, before we let you go. If there were a few things, one thing or a couple of things that are most misunderstood about brain injury and how those who are not familiar with it, what should what should people know to make um, to make things a little bit more aware? What are some of the the big misunderstandings that you've come across? I think a lot of it is this um, underestimating brain injury survivors, thinking that we really are like, uh, you know, second graders and our skills are not good. When the, in fact, is because you cannot see it, brain injury survivors, at least in my experience, everyone has a different experience, but my experience, we're smart. And mm-hmm. we can really, really do things. And I think that I would like that. I would like more of dignity and respect to be shown to brain injury survivors everywhere, that we are smart and capable and perfectly good as well as anybody else. Yeah, there's challenges, obviously, but we we can do it. We're smart. Let me ask this, and it's just, uh, I'm going to, I'm not putting words in your mouth, but I guess because we use the word mental illness, Mm-hmm. We think of the brain being in the head and mentality. Do mm-hmm. sometimes people kind of confuse mental illness with brain injury? Oh, absolutely. The There's a big uh, issue about neurology versus psychiatry. You're, that was a wonderful comment you just made, a wonderful point. Uh, there is so much overlapping between the two. Um, but yet all I can say in, in terms of that uh, is that in my experience, obvi- there were a lot of... Uh, uh, <laughs> there was a lot of combination between having neurological, psychiatric issues, uh, physical issues, all of that stuff. But I also want to say everyone's experience is different. I cannot say what another brain injured person is going through at all. But I can say what mine is. Yeah, it did include neurological issues, psychiatric issues, all of those issues. Correct. Right. Wonderful point. And if there were one thing that you would as hope if the brain awareness, brain injury awareness month 
what would be the one or two things that you would like the public to be more aware of? Now, you mentioned one mm-hmm. about that brain injury people are smart. But mm-hmm. are there any other things you would like the public to be more aware of? Yes, I would love, love there to be more funding and research about brain injury. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, I don't think it was mentioned in the statistics, but TBI uh, affects more people than AIDS, than HIV AIDS and a lot of, and cancer. What uh, is TBI? What is TBI? Tra- traumatic brain injury. Got it. Um, yeah. So a lot of people say that. Con- if you look at uh, the news, um, army veterans, right? Athletes, so many people have this, but there's not enough not enough medical research, and that needs to be done. That needs to be done to find out good solutions, treatments, everything. So if anything, I can say, please, please, we need more funding, and we need more research. You know, it's interesting. A number of years ago, we had a guest on the show was the doctor who pretty much on his own discovered, and I'm not going to get the name right, but the damage to the brain that football players Mm -hmm. suffered Mm -hmm. from concussions and he he almost had to do all the research mm-hmm. in his off hours behind the scenes first of all nobody wanted to know about it right and mm-hmm. nobody was funding it so i remember that from a number of years ago so uh, i can understand the need for additional funding mm-hmm. correct okay so ashok thank you so much for taking the time to be with us Tom, thanks for having your friend on, on the show. Thank you, Monsieur. And thank, thank you, you Ashok. <laughs> wonderful to be here. You did great. Thank you very great. much. Thank you. Okay. Uh, Ashok Ra- Rahamani. Rajamani. Ashok Rajamani. Rajamani. Yeah. The author of Memoir the Day My Brain Exploded, a true story. <laughs> just love God. Just love your neighbor. Just love yourself. And our world will be more just and it will be more compassionate. We'll be back in just a moment on the Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129.
Now, let's get back to Just Love and your host, Monsignor Kevin Sullivan. Welcome back to Just Love. Just do it. Just love God. Just love your neighbor. Just love yourself. And our world will be more just and it will be more compassionate. As we're in the middle of Lent, I think it does make a little bit of sense. Let's just tease out what we say. Just love. Just love God. Just love your neighbor. Just love yourself. In Lent, we say more prayer, more sacrifice, more fast, uh, more charity. Well, those are all related to each other. They're related to each other because the love of neighbor, as we say, just love your neighbor, is the charity part of Lent. Just love God? Well, that's the prayer portion of Lent. And just love yourself is the sacrifice part of Lent. Now, one might say, well, how is that loving yourself? Well, what it does is whenever you sacrifice, whenever you fast, you are very much more conscious of yourself. Oftentimes, because when you're fasting, you tend to get hungrier. <laughs> when you are sacrificing, you realize that it's yourself that is getting involved in that. So it focuses you more on yourself, just as in charity, the focus is on another person, loving of neighbor. It's um, it's it's focused there. And how do we love God? Well, you know, we don't give God Christmas gifts in the sense that we don't do it that way. But prayer is our love of God, because communicating with someone, making time for someone is what love is about. That's part of a relationship. So prayer is the expression of our love of God. So when we say, just love God, just love yourself, just love your neighbor, what we are really doing is giving a little bit of the formula for Lent. Just pray, just sacrifice, just be charitable. And it kind of all comes together. And if we go back to the book of Genesis, the original relationships in the book of Genesis are the relationship with God. They walked and they talked with God. With neighbor Adam and Eve, there was that little bit of that tension over the sin of, of the, the disobedience that was there, but the closeness because it took a while until there was an equal partner. And so, and then finally, a little bit of the self, the self-awareness in they were naked and they were embarrassed by that after the fall. So anyway, Lent, just love God, just pray. Just love your neighbor, be charitable. Just love yourself, a little sacrifice, a little faster. We'll be back again next week on the Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129. You're listening to the Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129. 